in a liturgical worship service, it's customary for the pastor to stand in front of the congregation and say, the Lord be with you. It's equally customary for the congregation to respond to the pastor by saying, and also with you. In one particular Lutheran church on one particular Sunday, the sound system went haywire. The first thing the crowd heard was the preacher say, there is something wrong with this microphone. And the congregation instinctively replied in unison, and also with you. <laughs> this morning I want to talk about the one thing that's wrong with all of us. And that one thing just might surprise you. Today we find ourselves in Judges chapter 9. It's the longest chapter in that sacred book. It's the most depressing chapter. It's the most disobedient chapter. It is the chapter where there is no judge that is raised up to deliver God's people. It's a chapter that almost appears as if God is absent. In 57 verses, the name of God is only mentioned five times. It's in this chapter that we see the people of God having the longest period of holy amnesia. It is in this chapter that we give our attention this morning. In order for us to wrap our arms around this chapter, I want to read the last few verses leading into chapter 9, and I want to lead, read the last couple of verses at the end of chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Judges chapter 8. I want to read verses 28 to 35, and then read chapter 9, verses 56 and 57. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Judges chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Orpha of the Abizrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again began, uh, again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Barith as their god, and they did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. Now chapter 9, verses 56 and 57. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The one thing that's wrong with all of us is pride. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, the demon of pride is born with us, and the demon of pride will not die one hour before us. It is so woven into the fabric of who we are that it's not until we find ourselves in the winding sheets of death 
do we hear its last word. Uh, Pride is halitosis of the soul. You've all met people with bad breath, haven't you? It's obvious to everybody else but to them. Such is the case with pride. It's been said that pride is the only disease that affects everyone else and is evident to everyone else except the one who carries it. You've been told that pride comes before the fall. We see it on display, don't we? We see it in the lives of athletes and performers. We see it in the lives of teachers and coaches. We see it in the lives of lawyers and doctors. We see it displayed in the lives of parents and and, uh, students, uh, children. We see it in the lives of politicians and, dare I say, preachers, that pride comes before the fall. In the New Testament, Pride is described as thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. In our story, we are told that following the victorious crusade of Gideon, he went back home. He enjoyed a period of peace that lasted 40 years. I don't know what you do during times of peace and prosperity, but I can tell you what Gideon did. He made babies. Bible says he had 70 sons. That's not a typo. 70 sons. I find it comical, the very next phrase, and many wives. Do you think? Can I get a hearty amen from all the mamas in the crowd? Can you imagine giving birth to 70? So he had 70 sons and many wives. This does not tell us the total number of children that Gideon had, for it does not tell us the number of daughters that were born to him. But it does tell us that he had 70 sons. I suspect that Gideon was never alone any night of the week. I suspect that it was difficult for Gideon to keep track of all their names and all their birth dates and all their special occasions. Can you imagine someone approaching Gideon and Gideon saying, who are you? And he says, dad, I am your son. Oh yeah, you're number 32. How can I forget you? You're the apple of my eye, right? Seventy sons. And many wives. I don't know how many are many, but many wives. But with those wives comes anniversary dates. With those wives come birthdays. With those wives come special dates that you've got to remember. And with those wives come mother-in-laws, right? So can you imagine the life of Gideon? Yet this is described as a time of peace and prosperity for some 40 years. Now, Gideon did make one mistake, and all joking aside, this is a serious mistake. His servant became his mistress. She conceived, gave birth to a son, his name, Abimelech. When the curtain lifts on Judges chapter 9, we are told Abimelech's story. Abimelech wanted to be king. He wanted to be a ruler. Now, his mother, the concubine mistress, the servant that became a mistress, she was from the land of Shechem. So Abimelech went to the people of Shechem and he said, you don't want Gideon's 70 sons to rule over you, do you? Let me be your king. His argument won the day and won their hearts. They gave him some money, money that was taken from the temple treasury of Baal, for no sooner had Gideon died Then the people of Israel began to prostitute themselves to foreign gods. They began to worship Baal again. 
And so the people of Shechem, they gave Abimelech some of the money from the temple treasury of Baal. He hired some thugs. They rounded up all 70 of Gideon's sons. We are told on one stone rock, Abimelech had all 70 of the brothers executed. The blood of 70 brothers was shed on that rock. There was one brother that got away, the youngest, his name, Jotham. On coronation day, when Abimelech was going to be crowned as king, Jotham climbed up Mount Gerizim. He shouted what we could call one of the first parables of the Bible. He said, one day the trees wanted to make them a king. So they went to the olive tree and wanted the olive tree to be their king. And the olive tree said, why would I hold sway over the other trees and forfeit my ability to produce precious olive oil? They then went to the fig tree. And the fig tree had a similar rejection. The fig tree said, why would I give up my sweet figs to have sway over all the trees? They then went to the grapevine. And the grapevine said, why would I want to rule over all the trees of the kingdom and give up my rights to produce sweet fruit that produces precious wine for kings and countrymen? Then they went to the thorn bush. The thorn bush, which was useless. It was only used for kindling wood. It was only used to spark a blaze. And Jotham shouted from Mount Gerizim, what you have chosen today is a thorn bush. In Abimelech you have someone who is completely useless. His fire will destroy you and you will destroy him. The curse of Jotham was proclaimed and announced. For the first three years, Abimelech ruled with an iron fist. We are told in verse 23, that God sent an evil spirit that divided Abimelech from the citizens of Shechem. This is the first time God's name is mentioned in chapter 9. All the way down in verse 23, almost halfway through the chapter. We haven't heard of God. We haven't seen God. This is the first time his name is mentioned. God sent an evil spirit. And it divided the people from their king. It divided Abimelech from the people of Shechem. There was division, there was animosity, there was frustration in the streets. And it is said that God sent the evil spirit. Now, anyone listening to my voice, does it disturb you that God sent an evil spirit? I hope it doesn't. Because after all, God is sovereign, which means he's in control of all things. He has jurisdiction over everything in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, in every realm. From the heavens above to the earth beneath. God is in charge of all things. Old Testament writers attribute to God all causality, which simply means by theologians that everything can be traced back directly or indirectly to the hand of God. God is sovereign over everything. He can use anything at his disposal to capture, to discipline, to garner the hearts and praise of his people. So in this story, God sent an evil spirit. After he sent that evil spirit, there was division in the land. There was a man by the name of Gaul who began to amass an army and develop his troops. And he said, if these people were under my control, life would be better. Can you believe that the man named Gaul had the gall to stand up to Abimelech? 
Can you believe that? He sent word. It got back to Abimelech that there was this one upstart that's really punk. His name Gaul. And he had the audacity to say that he could overtake Abimelech. So Abimelech gathered his troops, went up against Shechem. Abimelech so destroyed Shechem, he destroyed all the people, all the places, the entire population. There were some people that gathered in the tower of Shechem. And what does Abimelech do? He gathers wood, sets it up at the base of the tower, tells his soldiers, set fire to those thorn bushes. And on that day, a thousand people perished in the tower of Shechem, all because of Abimelech. Abimelech then threw salt on the land. Why did he do that? So that no one could inhabit the land. So it could not produce anything in the field. So it was useless. So he thoroughly destroyed everything in Shechem. Apparently, there was a neighboring village about 10 miles away named Thebes. The people of Thebes had aided the people of Shechem against their animosity towards Abimelech. So Abimelech was so fuming, he said, boys, let's travel to Thebes. They went to Thebes. And he had the intention of doing the same thing in that village that he had done to the people of Shechem. We are told the people of Thebes, they went to their tower. They fortified themselves. And Abimelech had the same goal. He was going to torch that tower as well. But there was a woman in the top of the tower. She got a large millstone, looked over out the window raised it over her head and dropped it, threw it down with such force with the aid of gravity that it struck Abimelech in the skull and it cracked his skull. Abimelech knew this was a fatal blow. He immediately called his armor bearer. He said, draw your sword and take my life. I cannot die at the hands of a woman. My story can't go out that way. My life cannot end as one who was slain by the hands of a woman as she threw a millstone from the top of a tower. So armor bearer, drive your sword through me. The armor bearer was obedient to his master. And Abimelech died. And that's the story of Judges chapter 9. Now, I dare say that nobody woke up this morning and you thought to yourself, I really, really hope that today, Pastor tells us the story of Abimelech. I mean, it is so uplifting. It is so encouraging. There's so much goodness in that chapter. I hope that we stick and stay right there in the story of Judges chapter 9. I dare say not a one of you woke up and thought to yourself, I really hope we study the story of Abimelech. And yet that's the story that's recorded for us. It's right there in sacred scripture. And all scripture is inspired by God. And all scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, repair, reproofing, and training in righteousness. So what's the benefit of this story? Well, today I want to give you two takeaways. As I look at the story of Judges chapter 9, I find two takeaways, and here's the first one. That pride is the conduit through which sin flows. Pride is the conduit through which sin flows. 
there is such a thing as good pride, isn't there? It's good to take pride in your appearance. It's not bad to take pride in your work ethic. It's not bad to take pride in the service that you do for the Lord. Nothing wrong with good pride. It was Warren Wiersbe who said that ambition is a powerful human drive. There's nothing evil in ambition, Wiersbe writes, so long as it is clothed in humility and controlled by the Spirit of God. If you have pride, if you have ambition, if you have drive that is clothed in humility and controlled by the Spirit of God, that is good pride. That's not the pride that's on display in Judges chapter 9. There's nothing about the pride of Abimelech that is cloaked in humility. There's nothing about it that is controlled by the Spirit of God. It is all ambition that is driven by self and success and accolades. It's all about Abimelech. My father in the ministry is Robert Smith Jr. You know him. You've met him. We all love him. Years ago, he told me a story. And I want to tell that story to you today. The story dates back several years It's when Dr. Smith was beginning to recognize that God was blessing and expanding his ministry so that his itinerant preaching ministry was taking him all across the United States of America. Literally, this was a time when he was zigzagging from one coast to the other coast. And not only within the United States, but God was giving him opportunity outside of the country. Literally, Dr. Smith was receiving engagements to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in numerous nations across the globe. He told me, Davin, I remember vividly one day. I was at a conference in Kentucky. It was early in the morning. I was lying in my bed. I was going over the sermon that I was about to preach later that day for the conference. In my prayer, in my preparation, I was also having my mind drift to places I had been in recent days and places I was still left to go in the months to come. And he said, I I almost heard the very voice of God. And he asked me this question. How high can I lift you without losing you? How high can I lift you? without losing you? How high can I lift you without losing you to your own pride? How high can I lift you without losing you to yourself? How high can I lift you without you starting to take all of the credit and all of the fame and all of the glory? How high can I lift you without losing you? I think that God wants to bless God wants his favor to rest. God wants to expand his influence through you, and I'm talking about every one of you. But sometimes God can't do that. And it's not because of a deficiency in God. It's because your pride won't allow it. How high can God lift you without losing you? Pride is so interwoven into our nature. It's very difficult for us to decipher 
and dissect what is purely selfless and what is selfish in our lives. I've heard it said that I'm not really sure if I've ever purely done a selfless deed. I don't know if I ever have the purest of motives. For all of my motives are a mixed bag of emotions. And pride is so interwoven into who we are that sometimes it can rear its ugly head and we don't even know it. I realize that for some of you, think to yourself, listen, I, I don't struggle with pride. I'm a very humble person. And in fact, you're so humble, you're proud of your humility, aren't you? Because some of us say, you know, look, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not proud. Uh, I know I have faults, and we uh, self-deprecate, and we uh, think and say things against ourselves. And really, it's, it, it, it's really pride that's masquerading as false humility is what it is. And so the question rings in my ears, and it ought to ring in your spirit. Well, the Lord says, how high can I lift you without losing you? Pride is the conduit through which sin flows. You say, preacher, where do you get that from the text? We are text-driven people. So where do you see that? Well, all throughout Judges chapter 9, you find the breaking of nearly all ten commandments. And all of it can be traced back to pride. Just look at the life of Abimelech. Abimelech had another God before Yahweh. You might even say he placed himself before the Lord. He worshipped other gods. He worshipped Baal. He misused the name of God. He did not remember the Sabbath day, therefore he did not keep it holy. He did not honor his father, for he killed 70 of his brothers on that one same stone. He stole what did not belong to him. He lied to the people of Shechem. He murdered his own brothers. And he coveted a kingdom that was not his to begin with. Now, for those of you who are very astute, you sit there and think, now, now, Pastor, I realize you just itemized about 9 out of 10. You didn't say all 10. Because there, there's one of those commandments that says, do not commit adultery. And you're right. I didn't say that one. Because in chapter 9, you don't find the breaking of that commandment. You don't find Abimelech committing adultery, do you? But you do find it at the end of chapter 8. You do find it in the life of Gideon. Gideon stepped out of bounds. Gideon took his servant, made her his mistress. She conceived, gave birth to a son, his name Abimelech. I contend that if it wasn't for the adultery of Gideon at the end of chapter 8, you would not have Judges chapter 9. It's because of the sin of the father. It's because of Gideon's sin that you then find chapter 9 on display. And in chapter 9, you find a just full frontal assault against the Ten Commandments. And all of these acts of disobedience can be traced back to pride because pride is the conduit through which sin flows. There's a second takeaway. And the second takeaway is simply this, that God is the only one who can destroy what destroys us. God is the only one who can destroy what destroys us. Left up to us, we go down a path of destruction. But when we follow God, God is the only one 
who can successfully destroy what would seriously destroy us. I told you that in this chapter, God seems to be behind the scenes. He's behind the scenes, but he's never off the scenes. God may be pushed away, but he's never pushed out. There are 57 verses. He's mentioned five times. And every time he's mentioned, he does something strategic. He does something important to communicate to the reader, to communicate to you, the listener, that it is God who's the one orchestrating everything. That God, he just might be behind the scenes, but he's never off the scene. He may be pushed aside, but he's never pushed out. Because God is the main character of the story. God is always the main character of the story. God is the main character of your story. Whether you see him often or not, God is the one who's calling the shots. Because God is the one who's sovereign over all things. So God's the one that allowed Jotham to escape, to verbalize the curse upon the people of Shechem. God is the one who sent the evil spirit so there'd be division between Abimelech and the citizens of his region. And it is God who gave that woman strength. I don't know how old she was. But I tell you this, she lifted the millstone over her head, not because she woke up and did all of her exercises in the morning. She was able to do that because God gave her the strength and God enabled her to throw it down so that the millstone cracked the skull of Abimelech. God is the only one who can destroy what destroys us. I've already made mention that there's no judge in Judges chapter 9. And as the reader, that, that stands out, doesn't it? Because up until now, Israel gets in trouble. Israel disobeys. Israel cries out to the Lord. The Lord delivers them by the hand of a judge. There's peace in their land until that judge dies. That's the rhythm. That's the cycle. You're used to that. There's no judge here. It's so stark. In fact, there's no crying out here is there? The people don't cry out. They don't come to their senses. They don't realize all of the sin they've been steeped in, all the pride that has blinded them. They're unaware of all of this. And they don't cry out, and there is no judge, and there is no deliverance. You get to the end of chapter 9, and people get what they deserve. And you walk away from verse 57, and you say, Lord, please send us a righteous judge. Lord, please, we need help because we're as arrogant as they are. We're as filled with pride as Abimelech. We are so shrouded in that arrogance. We think that we're the experts in our field. We're not the experts in our field. We think that we know everything. We don't know everything. We think that our opinion is the best opinion. It's sometimes not the greatest opinion. We are just like Abimelech and the people of Shechem. We're so arrogant and so proud. And we walk away from verse 57 and we say, Lord, please, please, is there a righteous judge? The person in that chapter that wants to be king is a pathetic king. His name's Abimelech. It's almost as if that the story of Abimelech is given to us to show us the brilliance of King Jesus. Abimelech is a wannabe king. But Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords.
Abimelech receives the curse. Jesus, he'll reverse the curse. Abimelech shed blood to slaughter people. Jesus will shed blood to save people. Abimelech kills the family of God. Jesus will save the family of God. Abimelech dies because of a cracked skull. Jesus dies on a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. Abimelech is a terrible king. Jesus is a terrific king. Abimelech is pathetic. Jesus is awesome. You read this story, and where Abimelech is so dismal, where Abimelech is so bad, you see the brilliance of King Jesus. So we know that Jesus is the one who takes care of everything that just might destroy us. He destroys what will destroy us. So my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, so I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. When you and I go to Calvary, we see our destruction has been destroyed. Our sin has been nailed to the cross, and we don't have to bear it any longer. Our condemnation is on the shoulders of Jesus. His salvation is dwelling within our lives. So we are here today because there is a righteous king. There is a better king than Abimelech. His name is King Jesus. And Jesus took your sin upon himself. All your sin nailed to the cross. All your anger nailed to the cross. All your arrogance nailed to the cross. All your greed nailed to the cross. All your gossip nailed to the cross. All your lust nailed to the cross. All your pride nailed to the cross. And you bear it no more. You come to the end of this story, and you have to conclude Abimelech is a terrible excuse of a king. We need a better one, and we've got him. His name is Jesus. Listen, pride, pride is the conduit through which sin flows out of your life and out of mine. And God is the only one who can destroy what destroys us. If you're here today and you've never trusted King Jesus as your Savior, if you're here today and, and you've never acknowledged that you are sinful and at the core of your sin is your own personal pride, and you say, Lord, I want to lay down my pride before you, and I take your salvation, your humility, your righteousness as my own. Friend, if, if you've never acknowledged your sin before God and believed that Jesus died on the cross for you, was buried and raised on the third day to give you life eternal, and today you confess that Jesus is your Lord, today can be the day of your salvation. We're going to sing a song. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've never made that public, today can be that day for you. As soon as we sing the song, as soon as we strike the first note, if you'll just come down from where you're seated, whether up on the balcony or here on the floor, you take one of the ministers by the hand and you say to us, I need that Jesus. Today, friend, today you can go from death unto life. But maybe you're here and you've already trusted Jesus. You did that years ago. You trusted him. 
But today you realize that even though I trusted him, pride still rears its ugly head in my life. It is so woven in who I am. It's really hard for me to discern, decipher, and dissect what is arrogant selfishness from what is selfless humility. Because I do think that C.H. Spurgeon is exactly right. The demon of pride is born with us. And the demon of pride won't die one hour before us. This pride is so interwoven into our nature that it's not until we're in the winding sheets of death that we hear its last word. So even if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to agree with me this morning that you still struggle with pride and slaying that and keeping it at bay. Friend, if you're a believer, but today you're just honest enough to say, I can get so arrogant. I can get so proud. And God, I need you to forgive me. Friend, this altar is open for you. Because I'm convinced that God wants to do great things for you. And God wants to want to do great things through you. So what was spoken to my father in the ministry, what he spoke to me, I speak to you. And hear it from the very voice of the Lord. When Jesus says of you, how high? How high can I lift you without losing you? How high can I use you? How high can I lift you without losing you to your own pride and your own self? As the Spirit of the Lord draws you, then you come, pray, grab a minister by the hand. And in this moment of invitation, you cling to the God who can destroy what destroys us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. Lord, where there is pride in our mind, in our hearts, in our hands, identify that pride for us. And then, Lord, help us to slay it. Help us to trust you. Help us to know that you've destroyed it. And that we can live in freedom in Christ. So King Jesus, thank you for being a good king. Thank you for calling us to yourself right here, right now, today. And Lord, we pray that whatever you're asking us to do in this very moment for prayer, for salvation, for decision, that you help us to do it. In Jesus' name we ask.